Hello and welcome to the TalksPod. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And there's one thing that all forensic toxicologists have in common, whether you're doing casework in a service laboratory or research at a university, one thing we all have in common is that we all rely on drug reference standards. We couldn't do our work without them. But there's a lot of complexities in the manufacture and the supply of these standards. And so today we're talking with Jenny Button, a woman who knows a lot about reference standards from a lot of different perspectives. She's worked in forensic toxicology laboratories and is now the director for Chiron UK. Jenny, welcome to the ToxPod. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, thanks for joining us, Jenny. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with forensic standards. So uh, I, I came into the commercial world in a sort of a, a roundabout way, um, actually. My, my background is in forensic toxicology. So I started out um, at St George's University of London at the analytical unit from the bottom up, really uh, joined as a trainee technician, worked up until I was head of the forensic toxicology service. Um, after 13 years, I, I felt that I needed to broaden my experience a little bit. At that point, I uh, moved on to work for the governmental forensic science uh, service um, as a, a reporting officer in criminal toxicology. Unfortunately, that was rather short-lived as the um, the service closed down, as you, you're probably aware, um, and a lot of the forensic science in the UK moved more into the private sector. So it was really at that point that I um, took a step across into the commercial world and uh, I joined LGC Standards. So yes, I, I worked with LGC Standards for a couple of years, helping them to launch one of their new ranges of reference materials for toxicology. And at that point, I was uh, approached by Chiron and asked by them to help them establish a, a UK subsidiary for their company, which I relished the opportunity to, to do so. So uh, I created Chiron UK. Uh, so at that point, I was in charge of the sales and marketing. Um, that's still primarily my role, but I'm also now the deputy director for the company. And as well as being able to dabble with forensic toxicology or toxicology standards, I'm also involved with um, food safety, environment and petroleum analysis. So it's uh, quite an exciting place to work. It's so complex with so many drugs that now forensic toxicologists have to maintain. And if you're a laboratory of any size, it seems like you almost need someone who's full-time just looking after these reference materials and making sure they're managed correctly. And it's a big time investment for laboratories, but it really is the most important thing. If we don't get this right, everything else downstream of this is wrong. So it it really is something that is worth investing that time in, I think. Yeah, you're right. Your your result is never going to be better than the the reference that you're using. There is a bit of mystery, I feel, around you know how they're produced and how they're supplied. And there's a lot of complications, as I mentioned before, with these things. So let's just start off with some basic things. What is a reference material? Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a, a question that we get asked quite often, uh, in particular what the difference is between a reference material and a certified reference material. Um, just to explain that uh, the, the language of metrology has its, its own dictionary, or in fact it has two different dictionaries. Um, one of them is um, the International Vocabulary of Metrology, or VIM, as it's called, which is also published as a ISO guide 99. And the, the other dictionary is called um, ISO guide 30. 
And that one deals more specifically with the terminology relating to reference materials and, and their certificates. I'll read you the, the definitions from ISA Guide 30, but really the, the two are uh, analogous. So uh, a reference material is defined as uh, a material which is sufficiently homogeneous and stable with respect to one or, or more specified properties, which has been established to be fit for its intended use in a measurement process. So moving on to a certified reference material, that's defined as a reference material which is characterised by metrologically valid procedure for one or more specified properties, accompanied by a reference material certificate that provides the value of the specified property, its associated uncertainty and a statement of metrological traceability. So they both come with pieces of paper, slightly different titles. The majority of the, the content is much the same, but uh, a little bit more extensive with the CRM. The largest difference between the two hangs in the associated uncertainty comment that sits with a certified reference material. So with a reference material, it talks about being sufficiently homogenous and stable. And I think that's more about fitness for purpose. But uh, when you're dealing with a certified reference material, you have to do a lot more analysis in order to establish the uncertainty associated with the homogeneity and, and the stability. And those uncertainties are then incorporated into the certified value that's given on the uh, CRM. So I think that's the main differentiating value between the two. So I can understand how you relate uncertainty to a concentration of an ampule or something. How do you relate it to a solid material? Uh, I mean, it's certainly more difficult to do it with solid materials, but it's about uh, taking samples across the material. So you need to make sure it's, it's well mixed and then you take a, a random selection, which you would then analyse and check that they give the same values. And then when it comes to supplying reference materials in the salt form, we get a lot of different kinds of salts. I mean, your typical sulfate, but then you get things like hemihydrates and all kinds of strange things. I'm not sure if uh, you're all just trying to get us to test our university level uh, stoichiometry skills, but <laughs> how do you choose what kind of salt it's going to be? Is that more of a trial and error kind of process as well? I think that's largely down to the, the chemistry. Maybe it's a question better directed to our R&D department. Um, but what I can say about salts is that sometimes they can improve the stability of the compound. So things may be more stable in salt form than as a, as a free base. Um, and they can also help with solubility issues depending on whether it's a salt or a free base, can change the form. So a free base may be uh, a liquid, um, whereas uh, salt form will obviously be a sort of a powder or a, a crystalline format. People usually find that uh, crystalline powders are easier to handle than, than solutions. One thing you mentioned before was solubility when you're preparing these uh, certified materials which you're dissolving in a solvent. Obviously, you use a range of different solvents, and I guess that's determined by the solubility of the compound in that solvent, because some are not soluble in various things. But it, still, there sometimes can be issues, right, with things precipitating out, depending on storage, and obviously, these things have to be shipped a long way. Often, the storage conditions might not be equivalent the whole way along that chain. What are some of the issues that you find with solubility of the reference materials? 
Solubility um, issues crop up quite frequently, um, again, due to the the range of the compounds that that we're dealing with. So, yeah, it's a bit of trial and error. We we make use of uh, internet resources. Um, We certainly take note of what uh, our competitors have dissolved things in as a starting point, because that also tells us if there's likely to be a commercial demand for a product in that particular solvent. You know, it's there's no point to, to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, if, if someone's already uh, done the, the work of finding out what it dissolves in. Otherwise, we we try. Um, if it doesn't dissolve, then we have some, some workarounds. We can try adding a little bit of acid or alkaline. Uh, sometimes that helps. We can create um, solvent mixes. So adding um, some water into that can help. We have a, a laser light that we shine through. Uh, the ampule just to check that there's no particulates present. Sometimes it can be difficult to to see by eye. The other thing we do is we we make up the solution and we don't ampule it straight away. So we would tend to store it in the conditions that we would recommend. And then we look at it the next day to just to make sure that it's not fallen out of solution. We also offer offer a sort of a customized service. So we get requests all the time for this compound in a in a different solvent and we we try to help uh, where we can, but you know, ultimately that means that we're, we're finding things aren't as soluble as we expected them to have been. There are some compounds where, where we really do struggle. You know, solubility is an issue. And uh, you know, in cases where we do have to deliver something that might fall out of um, solution in the freezer, then we make sure that we provide good instructions on the documentation to describe, you know, taking it out, uh, letting it come to to room temperature, uh, maybe vortexing it or sonicating it for a while at certain temperatures to, you know, make sure it's fully redissolved. So when you receive an ampule in the laboratory, you've got so many different drugs that you have to look after. And you think, well, storing them in the freezer, surely that's got to be better than the fridge. So one train of thought would be, let's just put them all in the freezer. That's just much easier. But really, in fact, that could be precipitating out your analytes. I mean, it, it, it's a possibility. Um, as a general rule, things are stable for longer when they're stored colder. But something to watch out for is if a, if a substance is offered in an aqueous solution, so sold in, in water, then you need to be careful about putting that in the in the freezer because it will obviously freeze and uh, then it can uh, expand and maybe break your ampule. But yeah, as a, as a general rule, things tend to be st- more stable uh, in the freezer. If you're just mindful about uh, the solubility issue and just do a visual check, at least make sure it comes to room temperature and, and, and mix it thoroughly before you use it, then it shouldn't be a problem. So we're talking about stability and obviously reference standards do have an expiry date when they come, certified reference standards do. Sometimes that expiry date seems like it might be a bit arbitrary. I mean, often you get a new drug that's come out and it'll have an expiry date of a year or so. Surely it can't have been tested for that long, you know, to check it. How are expiry dates set? So stability tests can be done by accelerated stability. So where you subject the standard to temperature extremes. So you're almost sort of forcing degradation or you're trying to replicate scenarios such as shipping at room temperature. So that can give you information much faster, but it's it's in a way a little bit uh, falsified. It's best to sort of gather data real time. So what we would call long-term stability. And, and you're right, it, it can be hard to predict 
we can look at the the structure we can um, consider the stability of like products um, and base our initial assessment on that uh, we can start uh, with a short shelf life and then gradually extend it through a, a retest process what we know is that customers like as long a shelf life as possible Typically, one year is the minimum that customers like to accept. Um, so we, we try to, to do a balance between a commercially attractive shelf life, but one that takes into consideration the, the potential for stability issues. And of course, if we um, identify through retesting that the product is not as stable as we first predicted, then obviously we have a, a process whereby we need to contact the customers and advise them uh, of the change um, in shelf life. I can see it'll be a precarious balance there, isn't it? If you have a, a shelf life that's too short, people will be less inclined to buy it. But if it's too long, it could in fact be detrimental to the laboratory's analysis. So it's a tricky game. Yeah, and it's certainly a problem that we've encountered uh, quite a lot recently with regards um, antibiotics. So um, primarily, they're offered to the market as uh, neat material. That's the, the preferred format for vendors to offer it in. But obviously, customers are often preferring solutions because they're, they're easier to handle. But we've noticed with some um, antibiotics, things like uh, tetracyclines, uh, penicillins, for example, um, in solution, the stability can be very short, as uh, short as three to, to six months. And by the time that that product has trans, uh, you know, travelled to the other side of the world and, and started to be used, you know, you're already quite far into that shelf life. So we're, you know, we're looking at ways that we can find a, a middle ground where we prepare the standard um, and it's it's calibrated, but then offered in a dried down format. So the customer doesn't have to weigh it out, but then they just uh, reconstitute it with a, a known volume of of solvent. So we've done half the job for them. And then the, the clock doesn't really start ticking until they've received the standard. So that's, that's one sort of workaround. I think it's really good to have this kind of back and forth that you've mentioned between the labs who are using the standards and the suppliers of the standards, even though it, it's sort of a, a customer supplier type relationship, but it should really be a partnership where there's information feeding both ways because we both have you know, one side of the coin, if you like. That's right. I mean, we uh, we value the expertise of our customers and, and always uh, welcoming feedback to uh, improve our services. So one thing that I think people would have the most complaints about, you, you can tell me if people have the most complaints about this, is delivery times. Sometimes standards can take a really long time to get to the customer. Why is that? I can tell you that it's something that uh, frustrates us as much as it frustrates you. If a standard is in stock and it's uncontrolled, then we can mobilize it pretty quickly. Um, and there are no or very few delivery challenges. Delivery delays are more commonly um, associated with uh, controlled substances. So I think uh, all toxicology labs will be familiar with the requirement for a license to possess controlled substances. And some labs may even have a license to produce. But if you want to move a substance, a reference material even, across country borders, then you also need a license to import and a license to export. And those licenses are single use and uh, for uh, 
predetermined duration, usually between uh, three or six months you have in order to, to complete that process. Depending on the efficiency of the issuing authority and the accuracy of the information that they've received, to obtain an import or an export license can vary very much between one week through to uh, a month or more. And it can sometimes occur where uh, an import license might expire before an export license has been issued. And then you're sort of back to, to square <laughs> one with the, with the process. Before a national competent authority can issue an import license for an internationally controlled substance, that uh, country has to have returned an estimate of how much of uh, that substance their country is going to use for medical or scientific purposes that year. So um, they return their estimate to INCB, that's approved, and then it uh, goes onto a list and is published on the website. Now, if the country has not completed that process, so they've not um, declared how much of a substance they want to use, then we are unable to obtain a license. So that, that's a, a real challenge, trying to, to get that message through to those that are issuing the licenses, that they, they need to check that an estimate has been submitted before they, they send the license. Are there some countries that are easier to export or import into? What are your favourites? <laughs> oh, Australia, of course. Of course. Um, I mean, different countries have uh, different approaches. So everybody who's signed up to um, the United Nations international conventions have agreed to control uh, internationally controlled substances. The way in which they control them can, can differ from one country to another. So um, what several national authorities have done is to introduce exemptions. And this is really, uh, really helpful for us. So what, what they do is they say that small quantities, so um, one milligram per mil or below in many instances, can be moved without the need for a license. And if, if we think back to the purpose of a, a import and export licenses, um, the whole procedure is really based around the pharmaceutical industry where they're used to um, importing kilograms of drugs or even metric tons or container loads. And in a way, toxicology labs and, and, and our sort of activities kind of get caught up in that process. And I don't think that they were, were ever really meant to. Um, so, yeah, se several countries have uh, issued these exemptions and they, they vary from country to country. Mostly they relate to solutions. So below a certain concentration, they're, they're considered exempt and don't need uh, a licence. Um, some countries even have exemptions for neat materials, um, and that's uh, dependent on the, the laboratory. So I've seen an exemption for less than five grams of a controlled substance, which is probably quite excessive by, by most labs' requirements. Those concentration thresholds that you mentioned, or the weight thresholds, has that changed at all with the uh, emergence of NPS? Because five milligrams of ibuprofen is not very much, for example, but five milligrams of carfentanil is quite a bit. Yeah, different countries have different thresholds. Um, as I said, it, most um, work around the one milligram per mil level. For Italy, I believe it's um, 500 microgram per mil. Germany, I think many of them are 100 microgram per mil. So this is why sometimes you see drugs like diazepam 
uh, offered at one milligram per mil and 100 microgram per mil for much the same price. It's really, you know, it's a, a product that's been introduced to try and circumvent these uh, uh, requirements for, for a license in a certain country. The UK does have um, some exemptions. Um, and in those, it does talk about the fact that the substance cannot be recoverable or cannot easily be recoverable at a concentration that may be considered hazardous to human health. So from that perspective, um, the exemption wouldn't really hold for carfentanil, for example, where, you know, one milligram per mil or one milligram of carfentanil could, uh, could still cause uh, significant harm or likely death. Normally with delivery times, I think people are now used to it and, you know, it can take a while, all right, we're, we're happy to wait, we're prepared to wait. But there are certain circumstances where it's very difficult for us to wait, like if we have an urgent case or if we have, uh, we've detected a drug that degrades, we've detected a cathinone, for example, in a sample. We can almost see it degrading before our eyes while the sample's in the freezer, you know, but we're having to wait to get this certified standard so that we can quantify it. Or we've got a proficiency test, which has a certain date that we have to have it out by. So if we can't get a certified reference material in time to meet any of these deadlines, what would you recommend that toxicologist do in that circumstance? Um, in, in that kind of circumstance, I would... Uh maybe speak to the the other labs that uh, are in your area to see if anybody else has that standard available. See if you can perhaps share resources or, or look at uh, referring the sample. But I, I think um, UNODC recognises that movement of drugs between countries and, and across borders is um, more bureaucratic than it really ought to be. There was a survey that was undertaken, um, I think, about 10 years ago now, which looked at some of these barriers to um, accessing reference materials for, for scientific or medical purposes. They identified a number of problems. They, uh, they made recommendations. But I think as of today, there's still many of those challenges that have not been properly addressed. So, you know, I would really support groups such as TAFT or SOFT, you know, EMC, DDA and so on, coming together maybe uh, in a united voice, speaking again to uh, UNODC or INCB, who are responsible for sort of administrating these uh, requests uh, and see if there are more improvements that we can do, not necessarily just at a, a country level, but a, at a top level down. Uh, matrix materials, again, is, a, is another one that uh, differs from country to country. In the majority of cases, they are not controlled, even if they control, uh, contain controlled substances. And I think that comes down to whether or not the, the product is easily recoverable. But there are some countries where a matrix material would be considered controlled and licenses are required. So, yeah, it very much varies still. It's, it's quite complicated trying to get your head around all these yeah. uh, uh, different regulations. And then I imagine you have biological controls on top of that. If you're trying to ship biological material, some countries may have rules around that as well. Uh, yes, yes, that's the case. Is, have you found that there is an increasing demand for these reference materials which are in biological samples, whether it's blood or oral fluid, or are people still preferring just to purchase the neat standards and make up their own QCs and so on? Uh, well, well, Chiron um, don't actually 
produce any matrix materials in biological substances ourselves, but we we do um, distribute some of those for for other vendors. The challenge with uh, matrix materials is that they fall into what we call um, in vitro diagnostic device territory. Um, so as soon as you have it in a biological sample, it requires CE marking. So that's just a, another sort of level of regulation. Um, so what we normally do is we would uh, produce a mix that customers can then spike into a blood sample when they receive it. But we find that um, customers have their own uh, defined panels. So it's hard to create uh, a mix that is one size fits all. Usually one customer wants one drug more or, or less. And, you know, I think there has to be some sort of compromise or, you know, different cutoffs um, also for different um, areas of, of application and, and different countries as well. Yeah, we do all like to do things our own way and we all come up with our own methods and all that kind of thing. Hopefully we some, get the same results. Some producers of drug matrix materials actually um, make use of proficiency testing samples. So I feel that they have added value because it's not only a gravimetric concentration for the substance, but they also are supplied with information such as consensus means from the other participants in the proficiency testing scheme and also um, you know, consensus or methodology means as well, which can be interesting to compare results um, via one method as compared to another. So with the emergence of NPS over the last 10 or so years, it must have caused quite a bit of a challenge for companies like yours and others. Have you been going about sourcing these sort of materials? Um, it, it certainly keeps us on our toes. The, the rapid introduction of NPS is challenging, but so is the uh, rapid disappearance of the substances, because it means that we could spend a lot of uh, time or resources in producing a new reference material. And it's not really in the market for very long because it's been controlled or fallen out of favour. So it, it doesn't give us um, sufficient time to recoup our investment. A few years ago, um, we were quite active in grey sourcing, as, as we call it. I think uh, many labs would consider it sort of test purchasing. So we were buying materials from online vendors, and then we were confirming that the identity was correct, putting them through our full certification system, purifying where necessary, and releasing those as reference materials. So the advantage of that is that we can meet customer demand much faster. And also the reference materials are, are much cheaper because we haven't gone through an extensive synthesis. Um, so that, that was uh, quite effective. Um, a lot of the materials we were sourcing via the UK and um, the new Psychoactive Substances Act proved uh, very effective um, because when that came into force, it became a lot more difficult to, to gain access to those products. And we did uh, try to continue um, that approach by sourcing materials from China, for example. But we found that the quality of the materials and the deliverability was much less reliable. So we've, we've largely moved away from that approach. Instead, we are working on something called the P4 platform. So it's a predictive parallel production platform. And this is based on trying to predict what the next big trend will be. Um, so with the fentanyls, we will make one fentanyl standard 
but we'll try to predict what modifications to that structure might emerge next. And then we would increase the intermediates and uh, precursors so that when that new compound does emerge, we're already halfway through the uh, synthesis process. We, we have the, uh, the building blocks uh, ready to go. Um, so that, that's one approach. We're also working quite closely with the uh, Linköping University in Sweden. Um, we have a Eurostars project called NPS Reform. So we have funding from um, this European source. So we would provide them with the parent substance and they would use that for metabolism studies. So uh, they would then be able to predict um, what the key metabolites uh, are likely to be. And they cross-reference that with their case studies. And then collaboratively, we develop the uh, reference materials for the metabolites. They become certified and then released to market. Um, so that's another way that we can sort of work innovatively with, um, with collaborators. So with an NPS, which might be quite transient, do you go the full distance and certify them or can you just provide them as a reference material? Is there a decision-making process you have there? Um, the vast majority of NPS standards will fall into the reference material category. Um, and I think that's the same not only for Chiron but for, for other vendors. And that's due to the urgent demand um, and then the short short lifespan so, you know, we, we come across quite a lot of uh, tenders that uh, have CRM as a requirement for NPS standards, but in the majority, they, they don't exist. It, it, you know, it, it takes a long time to produce a, a reference material. And I think it's, you know, it's important that it's, it's fit for purpose. And if we released it a year after the, the trend, then I would argue it's not fit for purpose. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's quite a few vendors who are supplying reference standards. Do you have collaborations between all of you as well? Because there's so many drugs around, not just NPS, even just prescription medications. It must be very hard to stock everything that anyone wants at any one time. Is there collaboration between the vendors on what you're going to stock or supply? Um, I suppose to a certain extent, we uh, keep things close to our, our chest, but I mean, to a certain degree, there is collaboration. For example, we act as uh, a reseller for Cayman Chemicals and Toronto Research Chemicals. So we, we recognise that not one single uh, reference material producer can supply everything and that some collaboration is required. And also, you know, it's not always um, a good use of resources for everybody to work on the same thing. But also you need to take into consideration that um, the ISO standards are very clear about the fact that you should have two independent sources of reference materials. So you shouldn't use the same reference material for more than one thing in a measurement system, i.e. you shouldn't use it for both calibration and control. And that's because if there is a, a problem with the um, reference material that you're using for calibration and you also use it for control, then you're never going to know that there's a problem. So that, that's why there's this strict requirement for two independent sources we can address that by two independent batches. But again, it's, it's not always a good venture for a reference material producer to produce the same thing twice over just to meet that requirement. It's much better to have a collaboration with another company so that you can produce one from us and one from, from another company. So what if there are two companies producing the same solution, but they use the same 
reference material to, to make that solution, does that still count as separate sources? Uh, I, the reference material world is quite incestuous, I would say. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, many roads uh, lead to, to Rome. Uh, so it, it can be the case that we've sourced the, the same uh, starting material. But what's important is that it's been independently verified. You know, different companies will use different techniques to, to verify the, the material. So I would say that, that that would meet the requirement of independent sources. I think um, also accreditation boards are, you know, they are pragmatic as well. They appreciate that sometimes it can be hard just to find one source of a reference material, let alone two. Um, so, you know, they, they recognise that. And, uh, you know, they, they do provide some recommendations for, for workaround in those kind of, of cases um, where you can't have true independence of the, uh, the reference material itself. What you can do is have two independent people within your laboratory make up a solution. So that would not necessarily eliminate problems with the standard, but it would eliminate the likelihood of problems with the production or, you know, how you may have corrected for the presence of a one of these weird and wonderful sorts that you, that you mentioned earlier or um, some of the other corrections or weighings and, and, and so on. So that, that, that's one workaround. It sounds like a, a reasonable compromise because it's not just that you might have problems sourcing it, it's also the expense of it. If you have a drug, it might not be an NPS, but if you have a drug that you only encounter every few years in your lab and you have to buy two reference materials, they're going to expire by the time you encounter that drug again. So it becomes a very expensive exercise. Yeah, but there, there are also ways in which um, you can extend the validity of reference materials yourselves within a lab. So they're, they're published uh, recommendations that can be made available. But things like QC charting um, is a good way to see if something is still uh, fit for use. Uh, it's something that all labs are, are doing anyway. So if you see that there's no drop-off in the in the performance of your QC, then uh, you can make a decision as to whether you will uh, extend that, or you can contact the reference material producer as well to inquire whether there has been a retest and extension. But sometimes it can be difficult to extrapolate that to a standard that you may have had open in your lab for. Uh, several months or a year, or you've diluted it in a different solution, had it in a different container or stored it under different conditions. So there's only so far that we can go with with extensions. But if if you can justify to your auditor why you feel that that standard is suitable for extension, then I don't think that they can really challenge that. Okay, thank you very much, Jenny, for joining us on the ToxPod. That's been great. Well, thank you for the experience. So Jenny has written a chapter on forensic materials, which is actually a very interesting read. And it really sets out how we should be treating forensic standards and uh, all the intricacies and things that some people might think is just common sense. But really, when you look at it, it's extremely important that we do treat these things in the right way before we use them. Uh, We'll put a link to that book in the show notes. Gives a great overview of the different issues involved with forensic toxicology standards, and I'd recommend it to, to anyone who's involved in forensic tox. And if you're a TFT member, you'll have access to the TFT Bulletin. Go and check out the issue from November 2013, where Jenny's written an article there about reference standards as well. You can access that through the TFT website, tf.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.